0: Welcome to the podcast of New City Church. We hope this podcast inspires you on your journey of inward and outward transformation. Please join us on Sundays. You can find more information on our website, grownewcity.church. God bless you. It is an honor and a privilege to be able to gather together in community, proclaiming the good news of God, the liberating news of God, even in the midst of some real complex and horrifying current events going on uh, in our country and around the world. Of course, in particular, we remember what is happening in Palestine, and uh, I'll talk about it a little bit more in my sermon, but um, I know that there's several New City community members who are directly impacted by uh, the violence in Israel and the violence happening in Gaza. So, um, our prayers are with you and uh, we strive to be in solidarity with all those who are marginalized. Um, so uh, with that in mind, th- and maybe that's, that's a perfect kind of like tone set for what it means to be Christians in Advent. Um, Advent is the season of preparation for Christmas. And so it's kind of like how we as a community start preparing our hearts for Christmas time. And uh, typically, you know, traditionally, we wouldn't sing Christmas songs until Christmas and we would sing Advent songs. And we would talk about um, uh, yearning for God and creating space for God and trusting God, even when God isn't readily visible or apparent. And I think this is particularly true, a particular uh, spiritual practice for people who are living in conflict zones, uh, for people who are experiencing Uh, just what human evil can bring to the world. And uh, an Advent posture is one witnessing that while having a hope that God's love is um, somehow going to provide a salvation from that or something beyond that, that a hope that somehow the evilest part of humanity will not define this human story. You know what I mean? So that's the Advent posture. And as we get into our sermon today, I want you to continue to be active in the chat prayerfully considering how prayer and Advent and all of these things might mix together with how you're experiencing the world right now. Um, So we are going to actually have two scripture readings today, two scripture readings. The first is uh, Exodus 19, and you'll see pretty quick why I want to have two. Um, this is Exodus 19, 16 through 20. Uh, Exodus is from the Pentateuch, so it's one of the first five books of the Bible very, 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 very early on. Um, think like Moses and uh, if you were there for our Exodus sermon series, all of that. And so um, this is um, right in the middle of a scene because I just want to show you a couple of details, bring your attention to a couple details um, without having to explain the whole context of this. But um. Uh, listen to kind of how God is moving in this on the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning as well as a thick cloud on the mountain and a blast of a trumpet so loud that all the people who were in the camp trembled Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God they took their stand at the foot of the mountain now all of Mount Sinai was wrapped in in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln while the whole mountain shook violently and seen. So that was uh, the Exodus reading. And uh, there's a whole, that's part of a a whole larger story about Moses and the people encountering God on Mount Sinai, promises fulfilled, all that stuff. But what I wanted to bring your attention to is just how, uh, palpably, dramatically, sensorily, visually, auditorially, God showed up in that moment. Because in this Exodus scene, God is like very visibly moving through the world as characterized by like uh, natural events, earthquakes and mountains and smoke and all that stuff. And the text says that it was so potent that people were trembling. Right? Like, so obvious that the people were trembling so uh that's in the pentateuch like i said one of the first five books of the bible and it it was a very formative image of god for uh, kind of the israelite nation and so uh kind of thinking thinking back uh through the traditions of adam and eve and then you know fast forward to joseph and then to moses and then later to joshua and later to david like all of these uh stories shaped an imagination of how god shows up to the world which by the way, it kind of at its core is like a, a, a... What are those called in high school when you would read the, um, the notes of, about a book instead of actually reading the book? The cliff notes. Like, how people have experienced God showing up to the world is like the cliff notes of what the Bible is, <laughs> by the way. Um, so, so in Exodus, we have this story that's visceral, potent, and causing people to tremble. And then we have our second reading, Isaiah. This is way, 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 way way later. Um, Isaiah 64, one through nine, Isaiah um, is actually like three parts that is um, the long, put together the longest prophetic text. It's, uh, this particular part is like after uh, the rise and fall of the Israelite nation, and then there is exile and all that stuff. So this is, way after but the theological image of who god is and how we should perceive god was still in the collective memory of the people so this is isaiah 64 1-9 oh that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries so that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who works for those who wait for him. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you in your ways. So uh, I wanted to read that first part because you can kind of see what Isaiah is evoking back to, like, uh, and I say Isaiah, this may, the person who physically wrote this might not have been called Isaiah, collectively the texts are called Isaiah, we'll get into it in Bible study, but the <laughs> the point is that you kind of see what Isaiah is referring to is like, wow, we have these memories of God being so earth shaking and so obvious and it's like wow who in the world could possibly deny that God exists in in those moments you know and then this is the beginning of Isaiah way 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 later saying um god i really wish that you would show up like that again. I wish that you would kind of jump into the scene the way that you did before, because it's um, um, not going as well now, God. And and maybe if we just had kind of one dramatic moment, then things would be different. And, and that's a little bit relatable to people who have been kind of journeying in faith for a while. That feeling of having memories, stories of like, whoa, I actually, have experienced God or like, whoa, I actually have had powerful, potent experiences that caused me to tremble because of how real God felt. And then to have other parts of life or current events happen in life where suddenly it feels like God's reality feels so far away from me right now. And I just wish that I could recover some of the the sweetness of the presence of God because things would be so different in my life if I could. Um, That's that's a relatable story. So, okay, so that's a little bit of what Isaiah was originally saying. And then we'll continue. But you, God, were angry and we sinned because you hid yourself. We transgressed. We have all become like one who was unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf. Notice this word all, by the way. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There's no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. Yet, O oh Lord, you are our parent. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider, we are all your people. Yeah, so uh, really potent reading. If you caught a word uh, from that Bible reading, you can go ahead and put it in the chat. For me, I know the word that stuck out was all, and we're gonna touch on that in a little bit um for those of you who don't know we are in the middle of a sermon series called pray for real which is definitely named after a song of the na- same name by uh peter cottontail featuring chance the rapper and it's honestly kind of like a an anthem for me of of what the life of faith can be like because the song says i pray for real i talk to god and i wait for real and i think that. Like that has so matched my experience of what prayer can be. Prayer can be something that um, is real, that brings us to reality, and that brings us into a conversation with God that's like almost like confusing in a way that it causes people to ask like, wait, for real, you talk to God? And it's like, yeah, I talk to God for real. <laughs> that's what that song um, talks about. I encourage you to listen to it. And, uh, and that's what we're talking about with this sermon series. Now, over the course of this sermon series, we're gonna be talking about four different types of prayer um, that you can remember with the acronym WITH, W-I-T-H. So the first one is WOW, prayers of adoration. John Carlos preached on that a little bit. The second one is I'm sorry, that's I, I'm sorry. And uh, that is uh, one that you heard Alsay talk last week a little bit on, and I just wanted to piggyback off of a little bit of what Alsay talked about. And then over the course of this Advent Sermon series, we're going to find out what T and H stand for. So that's that WITH uh, uh, acronym. So we're talking about this theme of I'm sorry, and in case uh, uh, this is interesting to you as it is for me, there is actually quite a bit of psychological research on apologizing. There's a, a full body of literature that measures what happens in an apology, how do we know that it accomplishes what it accomplishes, and what happens when apologies fail. And so in this uh, uh, research article aptly called Sorry Not Sorry, Effects of Different Types of Apologies and Self-Monitoring on Nonverbal Behaviors, this is by uh, Dr. Kyoko Yamamoto. they, and they start off their research by reviewing all of the research that has already happened around apologies. And, and they said some things that were so interesting to me. So for example, they found out that when errors happen in the service industry, customers respond more positively to an apology than even a monetary reward. That something about being seen in an apology is so important that people would rather have that when, when done wrong in the service industry, then a monetary reward. Which I'm also like, yeah, but give me a free appetizer. You know what I mean? <laughs> like Maybe I'm not in the majority of that. But, um, and they also found that um, in, in this research that apologies without nonverbal communication is less likely to be considered sincere. So if you're talking to someone and they're apologizing and they go, oh, I'm sorry. that's more likely to be perceived as sincere as someone who says, oh, I'm sorry, because there's a nonverbal component to apologizing that helps us to gauge whether or not it's reliable or trustworthy. Interesting, right? They also found that um, at at least Dr. Yamamoto uh, talks about apologies in two different ways. And this is a little bit where we're gonna be diving in. Uh, There's instrumental apologies and sincere apologies. Instrumental apologies and sincere apologies. Instrumental apologies are apologies that you make to avoid punishment or social rejection. So it's kind of like, I don't know, if you're watching your nieces and nephews fight and and then someone else bites someone in the back, shout out to last week's sermon, listen to it in the archive if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, then, you, then you're you like, whoa, 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 wait, okay, you need to tell that person that you're sorry. And and it's kind of like this, like, you're doing it to, not so much uh, to create relationship, but to avoid social repercussions. That's an instrumental apology. And then there's a sincere apology. The sincere apology is apologizing to accept responsibility and recognize remorse. So a sincere apology, uh, is not just, I'm sorry you felt that way. <laughs> you know, a sincere apology is um, like, I'm taking responsibility for the, for the actions that I did that severed our relationship or caused you harm. And I'm letting you know that I, I wish that that wasn't the case. That's what a sincere apology is all about. The question arises, especially in light of our reading from Isaiah today, like what do we do if it wasn't an individual choice to do harm, but the society we live in? What do we do when the apology isn't just about like what I did as a person, but what we collectively as a society did this feels especially pertinent to the U.S.'s relationship to what's going on in Israel-Palestine? Um, the U.S. could be leveraging so much more to create peace. <laughs> ah! Oh my gosh! Um, to be talking well, not only uh, because the U.S. is funding Israel, but also because the U.S. has uh, relationships with Turkey and Qatar that both have influence with Hamas, like. We have to insist that there's more. And so what happens when it's not just like any one particular person's uh, uh, apology to issue, but what happens when it's our society? This is something that I think about a lot, um, especially lately, not only because of current events, but because I was tasked with putting together um, kind of a a apology initiative. (laughs) Let me explain. So in uh, 2022, Uh, I co-authored some legislation along with a group, an advocacy group called Minnesota Methodists, that um, uh, it was legislation asking the Minnesota Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church to create a storytelling space for LGBTQ people who have experienced harm within Minnesota uh, in United Methodism. Uh, the reason why this is important is because uh, since really the early 70s, the United Methodists have had a policy that says, I mean, trigger warning, that homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. Um, and huge, I mean, that that's kind of like a United Methodist denominational stance. Some of you don't know this, by the way, because you're like, um, I'm looking at a ordained pastor who's a United Methodist, and he's not really seeming like he—he he seems pretty gay, <laughs> and uh, and it's true. Um, in, in the the Minnesota annual conference, especially uh, in the past several years, but really for a while, has said um, our conscience cannot allow us to abide by that part of the book of discipline. Like the the uh, the gospel requires us to disobey the very rules within our own denominational body. Um, And, and which obviously is not something to be done lightly, but you know, Minnesota is farther ahead in this conversation than many other conferences. And so they said like, Nope, we're not doing it. And that's part of the reason why I'm continuing to be able to pastor to all of you because uh, not just because of one person, but because of the collective who said like, we have to resist this. So uh, in 2022, we proposed that there'd be a storytelling space for queer people to be able to talk about what happened between 1972 and now and what impacts it had and the suffering that happened. Um, uh, and, and like, you know, like how might we account for all of the harm that's been done to queer people, some of whom uh, are not living anymore. And we loosely modeled this, uh, this storytelling space kind of with inspiration from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, from 1996. You uh, are probably familiar with Desmond tu- Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who convened people from apartheid South Africa uh, that had just witnessed, inc- I mean, not just witnessed, but has a long history of incredible violence um, of apartheid and um, and Archbishop Desmond Tutu created space where people could express all of the stories that are unspeakable, uh, space where people can talk about torture and violence done uh, in the name of apartheid. And, and furthermore, Archbishop Desmond Tutu created space for people who had done harm to be able to confess to that harm, to admit, to that harm and to say, I'm sorry. Whether or not that was an instrumental or a sincere apology, we can't know, but this was a uh, storytelling space where Tutu was trying to find reconciliation. And so in Minnesota, we're trying to kind of imagine, like, well, what would a storytelling space that could account for these types of harms like look like in our context? Because, um, it's true that there are queer people currently in Union Methodism in Minnesota. And it's also true that like there are people who um, have like were queer or, you know, are queer people who were in Union Methodism and then left. And it's also true that there are people who have like done harm and who are still among us. Like, how are we even going to do this? And so we started talking to people and asking like, so, um, uh, for the queer community like what do you need to say what do you need to be heard and whom do you need to hear it like is the storytelling space a space where queer people are talking to each other and this is just a way for us to be like a in a kind of a just for us kind of space which in itself can be healing or is this a space where queer people uh are expressing this in front of a, a queer and non queer audience because like that's part of the healing. Or like, uh, you know, what role would like the parents of queer people have in this process? Like, would allies be able to talk about this? Would um, young people who are queer, who weren't alive when a lot of stuff, the worst of it was happening, denominationally, uh, like, should, should that be able to happen? And, and what about um, the people who have done harm? Do we wanna create space for straight people who said or did things that they deeply regret now, uh, and allow that voice to be in this space with the same weight as the queer voices. Like, how do we, how do we negotiate that? Would that be retriggering? Would it be rewounding? Do you know what I mean? So, like, this is why this is getting a little complex because we're just like, um, there's a lot of facets here. And so we're talking to people with ultimately with the question of like, so, what are you hoping will happen from this? Like, what does on the other side of this process, what does beloved community look like? What, How might we bring about a kingdom of God in Minnesota that is repentant of the homophobic and transphobic past and forging a new imagination for what church can be? How can we do this through the power of stories? We talked to a lot of people, and um, not to name any one particular quote, but just to, to kind of sum up the conglomeration, uh, queer people said, I would like to hear the denomini- people from the denomination say, Our policy was designed to cause you pain and we were collectively wrong to implement it. We'll work toward a different future. I'm sorry. So, like, this, I think, is such an important uh, spiritual discipline that we're talking about here. A spiritual discipline. Like, you know, like we're talking about the act of apologizing and apologizing isn't like something that you get done with so that you can go on to worship God or so that you can go on and do the real church stuff. Like apologizing and exchanging forgiveness is one of the core exercises of what it means to be a Christian. It's how Jesus said that we would build uh, what's sometimes called the kingdom of God, which is like the future that's the fulfillment of God's dreams for us, like the the, the just future where all are set free. Um, that's the kingdom of God. And sometimes people call it the kingdom of God. And here's what I know. A kingdom builder knows when to sincerely say, I'm sorry, and knows when to sincerely say, we're sorry. A kingdom builder knows when to own up and take responsibility for choices made individually, but also knows how to convene people to collectively say, we're sorry, and gosh, aren't we in a world right now where we would benefit from people saying we're sorry? No politician sees it as expedient to say we're sorry. At least um, uh, not we're sorry without something that is slipping right into the spot, right? Like we're sorry, so don't worry, we're going to do this. Or we're sorry, so just vote me in and then we're going to do this. Like it's, it's, Uh, instrumentalizing uh, (laughs) apologies, yet again. There's no um, uh, uh, um, public figure in our life, influencer especially, who's advocating for people to say like, even if we don't know the solutions, we're sorry. We're sorry. We're sorry that we haven't figured out as a society how to have a place where everyone can sleep safe uh, underneath a roof with the heat that they need. We're sorry that there are children who are starving. We're sorry that there's war. We're sorry that there's genocide. And and that's not to say that the solutions are simplistic, especially with Israel-Palestine, y'all. Like this is not a simplistic or even dualistic. Moral analysis. Like it's deeply historical and deeply complex. But we can start by saying we're sorry. And we're sorry that through this like interwoven garment of destiny, all of humanity has not learned to care for each other in a way that reflects God's beloved community. We're sorry. Mm. A kingdom builder knows when to say we're sorry sincerely and knows that apologizing is not simply a recognition of weakness and that it's not the end, but rather the apology creates the spiritual space, the emotional seedbed to then be able to move into something that looks a little bit more like peace. And Isaiah's text today that we heard earlier is an example of saying we're sorry to God. Uh, There is a uh, biblical scholar, Dr. Wenland in um, Iowa, who is talking about uh, this Isaiah text in Hebrew. And something that she says is that the way that it's um, uh, semantically written out, the phrase all of us, remember that word all that I called your attention to when we were reading it, that all is almost... um, awkwardly or like visibly tacked on to the end of all of these sentences and so for example uh when isaiah says we are all like one we are all like one unclean all of us like saying like god we've done something that has harmed the relationship between you and humanity and we're saying all of us like something feels amiss and this, this is profoundly un-American. So, like, delve into this, right? Like, like our society has somehow missed the mark, God, and that uh, has put us into a, a spiritual place that feels unclean. So, like, all of us, God, we're sorry. You know, all of us. Uh, there's another part of that Isaiah that uh, reading, verse six, that talks about, we're drooped like a withered-up leaf all of us. God, the soul of our society has withered like a leaf that is not watered correctly, like most of the leaves in Tyler Sitt's apartment right now. like We're drooped. We're um, um, lost our vital power. We've lost the ability to catch sun. Uh, We're drooped like a leaf, all of us. And I think that's so important, uh, that observation, because it's really trying to name like what a prayer of collective confession looks like. We're sorry. And when we say, I'm sorry to God, or we're sorry to God, we can remember that apologizing is about taking responsibility and responsibility means that we do have choice. This is important because uh, this is kind of the difference between, uh, Brene Brown makes this observation among many other people. This is the difference between I'm bad and I chose to do a bad thing. When we apologize and we're showing sincere remorse, it says, I chose to do a bad thing. Wow, I'm really sorry that I stepped on your foot. I, I made choices <laughs> to do that. I'm really sorry I bit your back. I made choices to do it. Apologies aren't saying, like, I'm bad or or somehow, like, I'm less than. We heard this last week. Like, from a Christian worldview, uh, your worth is an untouchable and completely full set thing. When you make... Harmful decisions, that's harmful, but it doesn't mean that you're less valuable as a person, because as a Christian, we believe that all people are made in the image of God. And if, if you're made in the image of God, how can it be reduced like that? And so when you apologize from a you know from a Christian perspective, you're not saying, I'm bad, I'm worthless, I'm somehow less human than you. Instead, we're saying, like, no, I <laughs> I'm a child of God, and you are a child of God, and I made choices that did not reflect that I knew that. And the the apology is is about remembering the power and agency that we have. Do you see the critical difference that I'm trying to make here? Like, a lot of the reason why we're so um, so nervous to apologize is because it feels like vulnerability, and it feels like... I'm less than or somehow like, oh man, I'm just kicking rocks. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm um I'm apologizing with my tail between my legs kind of energy. But that's not really what what the spiritual practice is. The spiritual practice is like I know that you are a child of the most high, and just like me, that you are loved beyond measure, and God has extended grace to you that is beyond understanding. And I made choices that dishonored. God's love for you. And so i uh, apologizing so that I can kind of practice within myself learning to recognize God's belovedness in other people a little bit better. Because here's the other thing that we read in the text from Isaiah. It says, God, consider that we are your people, all of us. God, we are yours, all of us. Every one of us are children. Every one of us are held by you. And when we apologize, saying that we're like that dang drooping leaf. That is not denying the fact that we are as profoundly loved as we were before we were a drooping leaf. God loved us when we were a sassy, taut, robust leaf as well. God loved us before we were a leaf. God loved us when we were soil. God's love is the constant in all of this. Our worth is the constant in all of this. All of us, Isaiah says. And do you see how powerful it is in prayer, to recognize both of those things together, to say, God, I am so sorry that we have not figured out how to recognize Palestinian children with the same belovedness that you do, while also saying, and God, I recognize that as a society, we are beloved by you and we've received grace from you, that means that there is hope, that there is another way, because the reduction of humanity at the hands of uh, people is never going to be greater than the love that God has poured out on all of us so abundantly in every moment of every day. You know, I consider, um, just as this news keeps pouring in, uh, the the hate crimes that are happening against Palestinians in the United States, the students in Vermont who were shot, the uh, child who was, um, uh, so many trigger warnings, the child who was murdered in front of his mother in uh, Illinois. Um, And I'm also aware of statistics like, uh, uh, was it like 75% of Jewish college students in the United States have experienced something anti-Semitic or heard something anti-Semitic since uh, October 10, October seventh, <laughs> like um, the rise of Islamophobic and anti-Semitic violence, is cause for us to say we're sorry to God and to each other, certainly, but to to God to say, uh, God, we know that you created all of us and that you love all of us, and yeah, it's true that Christians and Muslims and Jews have some key differences, some key beliefs that are in some cases kind of like mutually exclusive from each other. But as, as a Christian who truly deeply <laughs> leans on Jesus, I can't help, I can't resist believing that the God who made me, who forgives me, who loves me, despite all of the house plants that I've killed, and all the other terrible choices that I'm complicit in as being an American. And you know, like if the God who made me can show the unrelenting love that she has for me every day, then surely uh, someone who believes differently than I am deserves just as much love, merits just as much grace, and it belongs just as deeply into God's family. Because if uh, we start doing this like, um, um, uh, uh, meritocracy of heaven, then we disempower the God who saved us. If we start saying that we can earn our way into God's love, then we disempower and truly minimize God in the situation. I would rather believe highly about God's love. I would rather believe highly of Jesus's grace and believe that if grace and love is sufficient and extended to any one of us, then it is sufficient and extended to all of us. And therefore, from that, we can go about creating a new world that reflects that love that is not up for debate. Amen? Amen.